Hi, everybody. Uh, we're going to take a look at Chapter 1, uh, Diversity Amid Globalization. I'm going to go through the learning objectives with you first, and then we'll take a look at some of the key concepts and terms that you should uh, understand by the end of the unit. And then we'll actually get into, uh, then I'll do a brief outline of the unit, and then we'll actually get into um, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the unit itself. So learning, let's take a look at the learning objectives. Really, uh, the, the key objective for this chapter is to establish the context for understanding diversity within the world's regions. And we usually refer to that as globalization. Globalization is defined as the increasing interconnectedness of people and places through converging economic, political, and cultural activities. And as I said, it introduces the key concept um, for understanding uh, the course as well as your textbook. Uh, chapter 1 also provides an overview of the key themes in geography, including environment, population and settlement, cultural, geopolitical, and economic concepts. And we will also take a look at some of the measures that are used uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout the textbook and throughout the semester uh, and ha that helps us to understand uh, these various concepts. This chapter also introduces broad debates surrounding globalization as a concept and as a process. Uh, this chapter also introduces the tensions between globalization and diversity, what it means and how to understand it from a geographic point of view. And it really is that tension between uh, globalization and diversity that forms the basis for the entire course. So as I mentioned, uh, we'll take a uh, look at some of the key concepts. And these are uh, really key concepts that you should be able to understand at the end of the unit. Uh, first of all, obviously, it's globalization, which is a very important concept for, for the entire course, transnational firms, aerial differentiation and aerial integration, regions, uh, another very important concept that geographers uh, uh, look at is something called the cultural landscape, and we'll be looking at that uh, in this chapter and, and defining that. Uh, when we start to talk about population geography, we'll be looking at a model or theory of demographic transition. Uh, it's also very important to understand cities because uh, over 50% of the world's population now lives in cities. Uh, and we'll be taking a look at something called urban primacy and also urban structure and urban form. Um, we also uh, need to understand the notion of cultural globalization. And sometimes that creates tension in and of itself as cultures spread uh, to other parts of the world. And so we'll be taking a look at uh, the concepts of cultural imperialism and cultural nationalism. We will also be taking a look at um, religion uh, because religion forms the basis of many cultures. It also uh, forms the uh, beliefs and value systems for people across the globe. Uh, and we'll, we'll look at uh, two very broad concepts when we refer to religion, and those are universalizing and ethnic religions. Uh, as you know, if you follow the news at all, geopolitics is extremely important. So we'll be looking at some of the uh, basic 
uh, concepts in geopolitics. We'll also be looking at something called the core periphery model that helps us to understand uh, uh, the economic core of the global capitalist system and the, the countries that are in that economic are in that economic core and those that are more on the periphery of the global uh, capitalist system. And with that, we'll also be taking a look at some of the economic and social development indicators that are used by um, different agencies uh, such as the UN as well as scholars to help us understand uh, the differences between places as well. So just a quick outline. Uh, as I mentioned, we're going to be looking at the converging currents of globalization. And uh, as I mentioned, globalization, uh, we're going to be taking a look at uh, globalization and cultural change and how that comes about. Globalization is accompanied by the spread of a global consumer culture. Uh, increasingly, Western values and culture are spread through the media outlets. Now, you can see uh, from, this, uh, from this photograph here, this is a call center in Bangalore uh, where uh, many companies have set up uh, operations uh, to uh, service their customers when their customer has a problem with their, uh, with their product. So if you ever had a problem with your computer, maybe you called the 1-800 number uh, and then you end up uh, talking to somebody in India or some other part of the country. And so this clearly represents globalization. Um, and so as I mentioned before, globalization is not just economic uh, globalization, but it's also human and physical environments and how those are affected by uh, movement of people across the globe, but also things like pollution that don't, are not bounded by a country's uh, borders. So they essentially go across borders into other countries and things like that. And we'll also take a look at how globalization continually, continually reorganizes uh, global and local geographies. So when we talk about globaliz uh, globalization and global culture, it can create tensions as a Western culture sometimes will invade, uh, a, a, or, I'm sorry, a more modern culture will uh, uh, go into the area of a more traditional culture, and that may create tensions with the way people dress, uh, the way uh, it may uh, conflict with uh, values and belief systems and things like that. Um, we often think of global culture promoting Western values, but I, I think that's a little bit too simple. I think we have to look at it as a kind of a two-way interchange. Uh, certainly Western values are promoted in a whole variety of ways, but we also, in the United States, for example, take in cultures from other places as people migrate into the area and bring their cultural values with them. In many parts of the world, traditional diets are changing. Um, you know, they're going from a more vegetarian diet to a more uh, meat-consuming uh, diet as, as they become wealthier and things like that. And of course, we can talk about language and, uh, one, uh, and how that influences different places. We'll be talking about that a little bit later. And I think a really important term for you to understand is cultural hybridization. Uh, and that's how, when two cultures come together, how they mix uh, together. Uh, you know, very often when a culture goes into a new place, people will accept certain parts of a new culture that fits with their values and belief systems. And that's what I mean by hybridization. And you can see this is a shopping mall in China, okay? And you can see it's very westernized. It's certainly something that most of us, you know, in our images of China would never uh, kind of expect to see. 
we talked about uh, linguistic uh, diversity, and you can see from these images there are clearly uh, some uh, linguistic diversity. You can see we have on this sign in this, uh, uh, I suspect it's probably a, um, a 7-Eleven or something like that. Uh, uh, welcome, bien, bien, new, uh, and uh, welcome in a whole variety of different languages. And then uh, what I, I find this uh, photo of southwestern India really kind of intriguing. You can see uh, the satellite dish for television reception. Uh, again, receiving global culture through television. Uh, we're also going to talk about uh, some of the uh, advocates of uh, global culture and some of the things that uh, they, uh, 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 why people think globalization is a good thing and, what, and other groups of people think it's a bad thing. Um, we're also going to, as I mentioned before, we're going to be talking about globalization and geopolitics. Globalizing tendencies have transformed our understanding of national borders and really the role of the national state. Um, what is the role of the nation state in this uh, era of globalization? Uh, as I mentioned, we're also going to talk about environmental concerns. Globalization contributes to the creation and intensification of environmental problems uh, as a more consumer culture spreads across the globe. Globalization also contributes to the expansion of criminal activities, and we'll take a, bit, a look at that, uh, things like uh, drug trafficking, prostitution, human trafficking, and so forth. So let's take a little bit closer look at this notion of, uh, of the, the views of advocates and critics of globalization. So you can see uh, in some of these uh, images here, uh, you know, globalization, uh, stock market and so forth, trading across borders and stocks and currencies and so forth is all part of globalization. You can see uh, in the, in the, in the uh, lower image uh, what would, is referred to as a sweatshop, people working in, you know, for relatively low wages or very low wages very often in very bad conditions and things like that to manufacture consumer goods for essentially for us in the rich part of the world to purchase. And then you can see there's groups of people who think that this whole notion of globalization has really exploited a lot of people and caused a lot of uh, damage for a lot of people as well, not just to uh, working for working conditions, uh, for wages, but also for the environment. So the pro-globalization uh, folks, uh, globalization is a logical and inevitable expression of contemporary capitalism. Uh, globalization, uh, their argument is that globalization benefits all nations and peoples through great, greater economic integration. And so when we look at people working in these uh, in workshops or sweatshops and so forth, you know, the argument is that eventually, uh, you know, all boats, you know, the, they'll lift their uh, living standards and so forth. That's the argument anyway. Um, critics of globalization, on the other hand, argue that globalization is not natural, but instead the product of unfair and unequal economic policies that favor wealthy countries over poorer countries. Globalization promotes free market export-oriented economies at the expense of localized sustainable activities. Um, and certainly we've seen demonstrations against that across the globe, particularly when uh, you know, uh, organizations like the World Bank and the IMF and things like that uh, meet, you usually find demonstrations that uh, occur. Um, 
then there's other people, uh, and I would probably include myself in on this, uh, that see a middle position. Um, and that middle position is that through changing technologies, um, things like the internet, for example, globalization is, is really perhaps inevitable. I mean, it's going to occur. Uh, you know, we're going to, we have greater contact with other people in other parts of the world. Um, and if globalization is going to occur, I, I guess I would argue that uh, it needs to be managed, and it needs to be managed uh, to reduce the economic inequalities that uh, seem to be developing and increasing across the globe. And I guess that's where I would stand in this whole argument of globalization. So uh, taking a look at uh, economic globalization, uh, this is kind of the formal uh, idea of globalization, I guess. Uh, you can see that all the countries that are in pink here are members of the World Trade Organization. And the World Trade Organization uh, kind of sets the guidelines uh, and so forth for trade across the globe. Uh, they're the ones who come to meet and they agree on tariffs and re the reduction of tariffs and things like that. And so this is really kind of the formal face of globalization, if you wish. And you can see most of the countries in the world are part of the World Trade Organization. And again, this is another organization that the critics often uh, demonstrate against when they come uh, together to meet. And then we can also talk about the more informal uh, uh, face of economic globalization, and that would be uh, global uh, trade in, in um, narcotics or drugs, if you prefer. And so you can see that there really is a trade from the growing uh, regions to the producing regions to the places where drugs are actually consumed. And you can see from the map the various uh, drug routes and so forth. Um, so that's kind of the uh, informal face of globalization. Now, one of the things that we're going to be talking about is, and I'll talk a bit more about this in a few minutes, is uh, uh, regions. What are regions and, and how do we define regions? of the world. And so this is a map uh, that illustrates uh, the various regions of the world that we'll be discussing throughout this, uh, throughout the course. Uh, the only region that we will not be discussing is North America, um, simply because of time and simply because um, majority of our students live in North America uh, and know something about North America, and plus the fact our department offers an entire course on the geography of North America. So, uh, one of the things that, you'll, uh, that you should understand is most of the regions that we'll be looking at are referred to as cultural regions. That is, they have a similar culture. So Latin America has a similar culture. Most of the people in Latin America speak Spanish or Portuguese. Uh, in the case of Brazil, most people in this region practice Roman Catholicism, uh, but there are certainly other religions and things like that. So very much a cultural region. Same with the Caribbean. Okay, Sub-Saharan Africa can be looked at as a cultural region, as uh, North Africa, uh, Europe, and so forth. Uh, so this map just illustrates the various regions that we'll be looking at throughout the, throughout the course. Now let me talk a little bit about uh, how we define regions in geography. Um, really, um, geography... Uh, I should probably give you a definition of geography first. Geography refers to the description and explanation of patterns and processes across the Earth's surface. 
A fundamental component of geographic inquiry is the examination of basic yet highly complex relationships between humans and their environment. And that's really what geographers do. They look at the relationships between humans and their environment, how humans impact the environment, but also how the environment uh, in some ways constrains human activity in different parts of the globe. So when we talk about regions, we talk about uh, regions in a variety of different ways. Um, regions are units of similarity. I think that's really important to understand. So just like I was talking about uh, Latin America being similar culturally because of language and because of religion, uh, and we could identify other factors as well, region, uh, that, that's what sets it apart as a region, sets it apart from other parts of the world. So uh, regions are units of similarity. Uh, few, few regions are completely homogenous. So even though we can identify Latin America as a region, we know that there's, as I mentioned, other religions that exist in Latin America. We know that there's other languages that are spoken. spoken. Uh, but the dominant language and religion um, is really what sets it apart as a, as a region. Uh, boundaries between regions are subjective and they're very often artificial. Uh, so where does Latin America end and where does North America end? Some people could argue that uh, Latin America actually is, uh, extends into the southwestern part of the United States because many of the people in the southwestern part of the United States speak Spanish. Many people are Roman Catholic because of migration and because that part of the, of the United States was at one time controlled by the Spanish. So you can see it's really kind of a... Uh, 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 you know, imprecise, I guess, would be science in identifying regions. So let's take a look at a couple different types of regions. We have something that we call formal regions, okay? Uh, formal regions are usually based on some sort of um, physical feature. So in the case of this map, our formal region is the Santa Clara Valley in California. It's formal region because it's uh, it's been uh, it's it's looked at as a physical space, the um, the uh, Santa Clara Valley. We could also use climate, for example, uh, as a as a way to identify a formal uh, region. So the Amazon Basin, for example, might be considered a formal region because it's a tropical rainforest area. Then we also have things that are called functional regions, and functional regions are uh, areas that have been set aside for some particular service. Uh, so in the case of this map, we have set aside, you can see by the green boundary, I'm sorry, by, by, the, uh, by the purple uh, in this area, is the city limits of San Jose. That is a functional region. It functions as a unit. Uh, another uh, uh, idea that I sometimes like to use with my students is, Think of a Pizza Hut delivery area. That is a functional region. Uh, you call into the Pizza Hut and they deliver within a certain area from that particular store. Okay, it's a function. Uh, the delivery area is a function, just like you know the, the municipal government of San Jose serves a function in that particular region. And then we have something called vernacular regions. And in this particular map, they're using um, they're using uh, Silicon Valley as the functional region. Now, 
when we talk about, I'm sorry, it's vernacular region, uh, you could also think of vernacular as perceptual, how people perceive a particular place. So, uh, you know, there are no precise boundaries. Nobody has ever set down precise boundaries for what Silicon Valley should be or should look like or what area it should include. This is just what people perceive uh, Silicon Valley to be. This is a space. Your perception could be very different from the person who drew this map. Uh, so, for example, it may not include Scotts Valley down in the southern part of the area. You know, you may cut it off somewhere else. Uh, another example that I use with students sometimes is think about uh, regions that we refer to as the South in the United States or the Midwest. You might include Maryland as part of the South in your description of the South. I may not, and other people may not. Uh, you know, it's really based on people's perception, how they view the particular areas. So vernacular regions and perceptual regions are very much the same thing. So, you know, a lot of people think of geography as being a very old discipline and not very modern and very boring and all those sorts of things. And I hate to tell you, it is not. <laughs> or I'm happy to tell you that it is not. Uh, geography is a very modern discipline. It's a very high-tech discipline in a lot of ways. Uh, geographers use tools, as you can see from this slide, they use uh, tools like satellite imagery. They use computer mapping, uh, which is referred to as GIS. Uh, and they use the two things in combination. They, you will use satellite imagery to uh, to identify certain phenomena on the, Earth, on the Earth's surface, and then we will map that. So in this particular image, you can see the border between California and Mexico. And the red in this image illustrates live vegetation. And so you can see north of the border, there's a lot more live vegetation uh, than there is south of the border, okay? So, uh, and then you can see out in here, we also have some of our desert areas as well. Okay, and then you know geographers do use you know some pretty simple and basic tools, as you can see from this photograph, the shovel, right? Because uh, geographers do get out in the field uh, to take samples and things like that. Uh, so using some very basic equipment. Uh, we also talk about um, uh, uh, human environmental interaction. I think that's one of the things that I talked about. Uh, before um, is uh, environmental interaction, uh, which is really um, how the constraints of the natural environment on human activities. So, for example, you know, we'll we'll look we'll see when we get to population geography that uh, population density is very sparse in desert areas because the because of the environment there. But then we also want to know about the impact of human activities on natural systems. You know, humans put uh, waste uh, pollution into the air, into the water, and things like that. And how does that impact um, our environment um, and our ecosystems and so forth? And then humans also use a tremendous amount of resources. And so we can talk about things like resource depletion. And, and uh, you know, uh, some people would argue that right now we're in the middle of resource wars as people, uh, you know, as rich countries fight uh, to find uh, uh, more and more deposits of uh, a variety of different natural resources. 
So there's uh, all sorts of things uh, that we look at as geographers uh, when we take a look at human-environmental interaction. So uh, I did mention, uh, I did talk a little bit about regions. And so one of the things that we want to understand about regions is that they are these areas of similarity. And we look at uh, these ideas, ideas of aerial differentiation and integration. Uh, differentiation describes and explains differences between places. And integration explains the linkages or connections between places. Uh, and then another very important uh, idea in geography is the notion of the cultural landscape. So we know that humans impact their physical landscape. They change the physical landscape. When we plow a field to grow crops, we change the physical landscape. When we disturb the earth to build housing developments, we're changing the physical landscape. Uh, geographers refer to the changes, that is the visible material expression of human activity, on the physical landscape as the cultural landscape. And those vary uh, from place to place across the globe. As a matter of fact, they exhibit great diversity across the globe. Uh, even within uh, the United States, we can find great diversity in the way people build their homes, for example. You know, on the East Coast, we have different housing styles than people in the southwestern part of the United States, and things like that. How we organize geographic space, how our cities are organized, for example. Uh, in the United States are very different than how they're organized in other parts of the world. And so this is really a visible and material expression of human settlement. And as I keep saying, this is what geographers refer to as the cultural landscape. And then we need to understand issues of scale because it's really important to understand issues of scale. And when we talk about scale, we're talking about the size or geographic extent of an area. Common scales include local, regional, and global levels of analysis. And as the slide says, you know, they impact one another. The global certainly impacts what happens locally as decisions are made about the global economy, for example. That can have a huge impact on the local economy. So, for example, if a, a multinational corporation decides to move its uh, uh, assembly plant from Binghamton, New York, to someplace in China, it's going to have a huge impact on China as they gain new jobs and so forth. It's going to have a devastating impact on Binghamton, New York, as those jobs are lost here. So we need to think about issues of scale. And probably the smallest scale that we get down to is the human body, quite frankly, but our neighborhood scale and how our neighborhoods impact what's going on locally um, and even regionally and nationally, but how, how those decisions also impact our, um, in, uh, those global decisions impact our own neighborhood. So I'm going to stop here with this, uh, for this set of slides and pick up the rest of chapter one in the subsequent uh, lecture.